It's Seth. How are you, Ash? Hello? Are you there? No? You can't hear me? You can hear me now. I don't have my audio set up properly. I think I can hear you now. How are well, you, let's Seth? see. Two cannibals are eating a clown, and one says to the other, does this taste funny to you? <laughs> I've heard that one before. I got more. I was late for the cannibal banquet, so they gave me cold shoulder. <laughs> Hey, it's Seth Godin from akimbo.com, and you're listening to Ash Roy from Productive Insights. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hello there, this is Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com with a quick message for you. If you'd like to grow your business profitably and fast, head over to GetMeToDone.com where you can learn more about the Productive Insights membership program, which is designed to help you grow your business profitably and fast. We help you get clear on your target audience and create an irresistible offer around the specific problem that you solve for your audience. Once we've established an offer that's a good fit for your audience, we then help you to scale your business using marketing automation, which means you spend less time working and more time enjoying the fruits of your labor. If you'd like to learn more, head over to getmetodone.com right now and take that first step towards your business success and your time freedom. I hope you enjoy this episode and get a ton of value from it. I look forward to seeing you at getmetodone.com. So let's get straight into it. So in your book, Seth, This Is Marketing, you said something that really resonated with me. You talk about your approach to marketing and you say, this approach is simple, but it isn't easy to embrace. It involves patience, empathy, and respect. And I think that empathy is probably one of the least used words in marketing that I have come across. And in my opinion, probably the most important words in marketing. In today's world, we've got flurry of information flying around everywhere. We are competing with machines to create content increasingly. There's machine learning. We're in a very noisy world. How does a new business owner who's starting to grow his or her business start to develop empathy and reach out to people in a way that is meaningful and connect with them and make something that they love? Well, you have two choices. One is you can say you're really stressed. You've extended yourself. You've spent a lot of money. Therefore, you have the right and the privilege to steal whatever you can get away with. Steal attention, steal trust, trick people, make some money. Or you could say the most confident and moral way, most reliable way for me to build something is to find a very small group of people, the smallest possible group who desperately need what I can offer them. Because if I have what they desperately need and I whisper it to them, they will beat down the door to get it. Not very many of them, but a few. And that might be enough. And even if it's not enough, they will tell their friends. And that is where great businesses are built. That if you name a great business, I will tell you how it became a great business, not by insisting that people buy what they make, but instead figuring out what people need. Okay, I'll name a great business, Apple. 
Okay, so when Steve Wozniak, who was truly the godfather of Apple, made the Apple One, he had no plans whatsoever to turn it into the most valuable company in the world or second most valuable. He went to the homebrew club and gave away all of the plans and insisted that other people build it. And it was only when people came to him and said, thanks for this gift, but I would rather have you one build me one. That is when people started buying Apple computers. And if we think about people waiting in line for hours to get a new iPhone, who's hassling them to go do that? They're waiting to get there. Well, that's the opposite of those people who are spamming me on the phone, pretending they are from the car dealer trying to upsell me on some fake insurance policy. That's a scam. I don't like the way Tim Cook runs Apple now, but Tim Cook has persisted in following a path to say, if you want a luxury good that costs more than it needs to, I have one for you. And you know, I can say this, tell you the same story about Shopify and the same story about uh, Harley Davidson and the same story about Starbucks and the same story about Aravind Eye Hospital in India and the same story. I can go down the list. Great companies exist because they have empathy for the people they serve who don't know what they know, don't want what they want, don't believe what they believe, and that's okay. You know, what else is really interesting to me about Apple set is their product strategy. I think the products that they create have a lot of thought put into them. And this iPhone, for instance, is also a distribution channel for their apps. And their products have become their infrastructure to deliver a whole lot of content now. It's a payment system. The watch is going to do a lot of, gather a lot of data in the health space. So do you think that they are intentional and intelligent about their product strategy? No. I think that Apple has lost their way in the sense that I've bought over 100 Macs with my own money through the years. I am both an early adopter and a persistent, loyal user. But Apple isn't doing it with empathy for me and mine. You know, they, they ship devices with keyboards that they know don't work very well simply because they have decided it's important to them that the thing look a certain way, not that it's important to me that it work a certain way. That Apple has failed repeatedly to build anything useful on the internet because they don't understand what it's like to work in a world of abundance. That Apple's world mostly is a world of scarcity, scarce shelf space, scarce luxury goods, etc. The internet works because the network effect keeps it working. And Apple hasn't embraced the network effect in a really productive way. The phone you showed me is a triumph, a triumph, but it's also the single most profitable consumer product in the history of the world. And if you have something that is that profitable, I think you have an obligation to advance the craft. But in the last five years, uh, they haven't advanced anything. You can't name one breakthrough innovation that Apple has taken a chance on, on behalf of people like you and me, instead they're incrementally building the biggest luxury goods company in the world. And luxury goods are fine, but that wasn't the promise of their brand when they started. So in my opinion, if you want to learn about luxury goods, you can learn a lot from Apple now. But Apple is no longer the poster child for what is it to do empathic technology marketing. But you agree that that is how they started? Yes, that is totally how they started. I I've spent hours talking to Wozniak about this, and I know how Jobs bullied his engineers 
into changing what they were making in a world of Windows, before Windows, in a world of DOS, to make things not for them, but for the user. And that's a massive mindset shift that made a big difference in technology. So what role did you see Jobs as having played in Apple? Well, so what it means to lead as opposed to manage is to decide when to say no, to decide where your grit is going to lie. And so Steve was not a great designer. Steve was not a great typesetter. Steve was not a great programmer. Steve said no really well. No, we're not going to ship this. No, this isn't good enough. No, we have to do something X, Y, or Z better. And these choices, hardware choices and software choices, showed a rigor and an attention to his view of the world and who precisely he wanted his customers to be. And he was totally comfortable saying to everybody else, it's not for you. And the vibe that I get from Apple now is if you have money, it's for you. And that's different. Okay, so here's my question for you then. How do we as small business owners trying to build our businesses in an increasingly noisy online world discipline ourselves and be intelligent about what we say no to? Right. So the first thing which we just talked about is stop chasing mass, stop chasing more, and instead focus on better, the smallest viable audience, 1,002 fans, as Kevin would say. Number two is all the pressure is for you to make a commodity product. All the pressure is to make something that when someone searches for the generic, they will find you. That is SEO. Instead, make something non-generic that people will only find if they look for you, right? So if you want a Seth Godin book or a Seth Godin speech or a Seth Godin workshop, there is only one person in the world who can give it to you. Whereas if I was trying to write generic books about marketing or trying to run a generic course to teach freelancers, I'd have to focus on stuff that would appeal to a much larger group of people because I'd be casting a wide net and throwing most people overboard. But instead, by obsessing about what only 1 million people need out of the billions on earth, I'm fine. And fine is a goal. You don't have to be the winner. You just have to be fine. You have to be able to do your craft for the people who care. You're right. Our environment is screaming out at us, telling us to be the biggest, the best, and the greatest. And to cater to a small community that resonates with your product is scary. It's scary to make that choice that I'm just going to If you're wrong, then you're really toasted. (laughs) Yeah. And this brings up a good point. I, I like the choice of words you have. You say, dance with fear. Now, most people will tell you to face your fear and confront it and stare it down. But you say, dance with fear. And I like that because it touches on something that I've been practicing for years now, and that's mindfulness. It's the, yeah, the ability to watch your emotions, but not necessarily react to them, and maybe even harness them. So I sense when you say dance with fear, you mean almost use it like someone in Aikido, with, is it Aikido, where they use the force of the other person? But exactly. you use it to create something beautiful, that tension. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And how can our audience learn to dance with fear and then create something that is meaningful? Well, if someone could tell me how to make fear go away, I would be in favor of that. But I don't know how to do that. What I do know is that every time you feel like you're about to do something important, you probably feel some fear, which means that fear is a compass, which means if you're not feeling fear, you're 
probably not trying hard enough, which means that heading toward the fear instead of away from the fear is where generosity lies. So I'm using it as a compass. And once you show up and the fear is there, if you try to make it go away, you will either exhaust yourself or average down your product or service to the point where it doesn't matter. The alternative is to say, oh, welcome. It's good to see you again. I talk about the marathon. The thing is, no one goes to a running coach and says, I want to run a marathon. Teach me how to run without getting tired. Because no one runs a marathon without getting tired. The difference between the people who finish and the people who don't finish is that the people who finish know where to put the tired. And so I'm encouraging people to figure out where to put the fear because you can't make it go away. How does that work practically? If I'm a person starting today, a a lot of my audience, I have this membership site and it's a small community and I'm helping them grow their businesses online as I am doing with my own business. And often I hear, well, you know, you've got a podcast with some of the leading minds in your podcast. You have established authority. I'm not in that position. And one could argue the same thing. They could say, well, Seth, you've been doing this for 20 something years. You've been writing every day. It's all well, very well for you when you started. There was no SEO strategy. There was none of that needed. What if I'm starting today? How do I make a difference? How do I make my mark in the world? And I know you're going to say, find your thousand true fans. And that's a great start. But how do I find them? Well, actually, I was going to talk about the word yet. Because okay. I like they that. don't have yeah. a popular podcast yet. Yes. They don't have a popular blog yet. Because they haven't started yet. But if they start today, they'll have one. If you want to get a thousand true fans, it helps to get a hundred. If you want a hundred, it helps to get 10. And tomorrow you can get one. There's no way to get to a thousand until you get to one. That taking a look at the Kardashians as a role model is a bad idea on so many levels. The alternative is to say, person by person, I will find the right person and so delight them that they tell their friends. And if I don't delight them, I either pick the wrong person that's on me. Or I picked the right person. I didn't make something good enough. Also on me. And you can fix both of those problems. How do you pick the right person? Well, if you're a lifeguard, you should pick a drowning person. Drowning people really appreciate it when the lifeguard shows <laughs> They do, yes. And if you're an allergist in Buffalo, New York, you should pick people who have allergies. You shouldn't try to sell allergy treatment to people who don't have allergies. Well, What we know about the internet today is it is the greatest sorting mechanism for humans ever invented. You can find people who not only have a problem, but know they have a problem. So if you want to make $200,000 stereo speakers, the kind of people who want to buy $200,000 stereo speakers are all hanging out in the same place. Go there, talk to them, earn their attention, earn their trust, create tension, and then offer them a way to relieve their tension by being one of the few people who can buy one of your speakers. Everyone else in the world will never hear of you. That's fine. I have a question. Back in November 2018, you talked about writing every day. And I'd sent you an email and said, what if this and what if that? And a whole lot of questions. And you said, just begin. So I wrote this blog post on my website, just begin. And I wrote every day for the month of November. And I was delighted initially because... The traffic, and yes, I confess, I am as obsessed with vanity metrics more than I should be, I should say. My traffic went up fivefold, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm making an impact. People are listening. 
But then I found that the average time on site had dropped dramatically and a huge proportion of the people visiting my site had been there for less than one second, which meant that it must have been the bots. And I realized I'm writing for bots. And then I got disheartened and I gave up. Was that a mistake? Well, I don't know if it was a mistake, but you weren't writing for bots, you were writing for you. And as long as writing for you is helping you with clarity, then it's probably a good idea to keep doing it. If you want to write for other people, it helps to know which other people you are writing for. In the US, there's a fairly large industry of people who will install a swimming pool in your backyard. And they have a reputation for being pretty sleazy. And this guy who sells swimming pools for a living started a blog in which he gave away every secret of the swimming pool salesperson. Every trick, every gambit, every shortcut. Day after day, just gave them all away. And at the beginning, no one read it. Why would they? How would they even know? But over time, one person read it and four people read it and they told four people. Now it's 16 people. And the next thing you know, it's a couple hundred people a day. Well, if a couple hundred people a day who are about to buy a swimming pool are reading you giving away all the secrets of swimming pool construction, don't you think the phone's going to ring with someone who wants to buy a swimming pool? It might take five years. And if you're not getting anything out of it, maybe you shouldn't do it. But if you want to compete against six and a half billion other people on a medium where anyone with a keyboard is allowed to say anything they want, I think it's naive and arrogant to think you're entitled to a quick hit, right? I'll just say the first three, four years I wrote my blog, dozens of people read it, not thousands. Right. Which brings up an interesting approach to writing and business in general, and that is the idea of habits. I recently ran a planning workshop with my membership, and my approach was a bit different to the traditional approach. We tend to do our planning with objectives in mind, and that's the traditional Western approach in planning. You know, you're very obsessed with objectives. But what I said is I'm going to take a different approach. We're going to decide on our objectives for the quarter, but then we're going to map those to habits, and we're going to transfer our focus from objectives to habits so that we're not spending our lives with one eye on the goal, We're fully given, committed to the here and now because goal obsession by definition robs you of the present moment and keeps you distracted with the future. Whereas if you fully give yourself to one thing, there's true freedom and complete commitment to one thing. And James Clear was on the podcast episode 175 and he shared some beautiful ideas as well. He talked about habits being the compound interest of self-improvement, which I really liked. What I'm hearing is... I think you mean self-improvement is the compound interest on habits. Right. So goals are different than outcomes. You can make a goal that you will write every day, but having a best-selling book is not up to you. Having a best-selling book is up to the market. This is true. It's not a useful goal. It's a useful goal to say, I'm going to write every day. I'm going to Imogene Roy about this just today, and she put that seed in my head, that habits are opportunities we have to start where we are and get to where we are going. Stephen King says in his book on writing, I think it's in his book, he says, inspiration hits me every single day at 9am when I sit down to write. So creative breakthroughs, to some degree, come from action, not the other way around. But a high proportion of us, and me included at times, kind of sit there waiting for the lightning to strike. It's not going to strike. We have to put in the work. But it's scary to put in the work. It's scary to make a commitment to put in the work. But if you have a habit... And you sit down and you say, I'm going to sit down at 9 a.m. every day in my office and I'm going to write one line. Sonia Simone told me this from Copy Blogger. She said, 
If you sit down and just do it every single day, it is actually more effort than to not do it than it is to do it. So I think if we can build it into our routines to dance with fear, to take those little risks, then it, it de-risks it to some extent. That makes life a bit easier. Exactly. And risk is different than fear. So let's be really clear here. The two greatest risks we are facing right now is the certainty that a billion people are going to lose their homes because of atmospheric cancer and global warming, and that odds are an earthquake or an asteroid is going to come along and wipe out big sections of the earth. These are both risks, but there are very few people who are paralyzed in fear by them. Instead, we are paralyzed in fear, many of us, by risks that don't exist at all, that someone who you knew in third grade is going to realize that you're a fraud, come to your house and put a big sign in your front yard. The risk of that is zero, but our fear of it is non-zero. And so if we're going to be honest, we're bad at risk management, we're bad at risk analysis, and we spend most of our time living in fear. And hence the, the case for learning to dance with it, not living in fear of it, fear of fear. Correct. So you mentioned global warming, and that is something that concerns me a lot. And it's something that I often think about. How do we as small business owners, as digital citizens, what can we do to spread the word and what little things can we do to try and do our little bit to try and make this planet a little bit more sustainable? Yeah, so it is fashionable to believe that we can feel like we are doing our part by recycling our grocery bags. But it's pretty clear to me from the science that it's a cultural shift that we have to make. And the cultural shift is to undo the Milton Friedman profit at all cost mindset, as well as the mindset that has been put upon us by people who extract fossils, fuels from the ground. And to speak up early and often to say, if we all paid for carbon and we all got a benefit if we didn't use carbon, the free market would go to work really fast and really hard on sequestering carbon. And if we could do that with the same energy we have spent stealing three hours to six hours a day of every human on earth to use a smartphone, it would have a spectacular impact on how we're going about walking on the earth. So how do we do that? Well, how does any cultural change happen? And this is what I talk about in Akimbo all the time. You know, people like us do things like this. If you are in a Harley Davidson motorcycle gang, you don't show up with a Suzuki motorcycle because we all ride. Harleys. And when we're sitting around the table after work and someone brings up the idea of coordinated action to address a problem and the outlier who's loud, who wants to say, well, no, Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman says what we should do is not worry about any of that. And if you can make money, you should make money. We need to be able to say to that person, no, that's not what we're like around here. And I think this is happening faster than any cultural change in my memory is that it's becoming obvious and urgent that we need to do something collectively and it's going to tip. That's my hope. Mine too. In your book, Lynchpin, you talked about this analogy of 400 quarters piled up. And I really like that because it gave me this visual image. So you have 400 quarters piled up and the top quarter represents the last 250 years of our civilization, which includes the Industrial Revolution. And the remaining 399 quarters represents the remainder of the 100,000 years, of which 250 years was the most recent. 
where we have been more or less the human race as we know it today, you know, tribes, organised in tribes and so on. But we sort of understandably seem to think that 250 years is as far back as our history goes, which is not the case. And Henry Ford came along around in that last 250-year period and he changed the world with a production line. And then in the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen that the internet's come along and it's changed the world again because it's enabled us to do with information what Henry Ford did with cars. We can now productize information, we inventorize it, we sell it like widgets. In a world where we are now seeing an increase of machine learning, some people call it artificial intelligence, I don't, I think it's more machine learning at this stage. What skills do we need as a business owner to be able to innovate, to out-innovate maybe the machines, to survive in a world where machines are potentially writing content? I mean, how do we make sense of this? Yeah, so when the steam shovel came along, the ditch diggers were really freaking out. And when the punch press came along, the people who used to punch holes with a hammer were really freaking out. That every single time a technology has done something that a human used to do, we come to the conclusion that there'll be nothing left for people to do. And the difference this time is just that it's happening much faster. That in the last 10 years, we went from your x-ray, if you broke your leg, was read by someone in the next room, to your x-ray was digitized and read by someone far away, to your x-ray is read by a computer. And each step along the way, the quality is going up, the price is going down, the speed is going up, and your local radiologist is less and less happy. If the radiologist believes that they have a scarce skill, they're going to stay unhappy forever. On the other hand, if they say, well, anything that can be written down is going to get done better by a machine learning system than I can do it. Therefore, I better learn how to do things that can't be written down. And that is the essence of where we need to go as small business people, which is you can't be a small version of Walmart, you can't be a small version of Amazon, you can't be a small version of General Motors. You have to be a huge version of a unique thing that it's an advantage to be small. Right. And can you think of some examples of these unique things? One would, of course, be creating a product, as you said earlier on, that is only made by Seth, because that can't be made by a machine. Is that what you mean? That's part of it. You know, if I think about why I pay extra to see the doctor I see, it's not because I have proof that he's better at being a doctor. It's that I have proof that he's better at being my doctor. Right. That's a good, subtle point. Thank you. Or someone buys a $100 bottle of wine instead of a $5 bottle of wine. I'm not sure it's going to be anytime soon before a chemical analysis can tell us which wine is better. There's a human chain that happened that made someone want one instead of the other. But I think the huge shift is the creators of networks. If you are somebody who maintains the circle of 20, if you want to be with those 20 people, you need to be with the person who maintains that circle. And so the person who maintains that circle has created value. Right. And so the role of the facilitator becomes important. Well, the role of facilitator is all of it, which is when we were hunters and gatherers, that's all we had, right? Everyone ate what they ate. They hunted what they could hunt. They gathered what they could gather. But it was the chief, the organizer, the shaman, the medicine person, the big mama in the village. Those were the people who had status and authority because they were the only ones who could organize. Okay. I've got a question from one of, our, one of my members, I should say. His question is, what do you think is the biggest mistake people make in online marketing and how do they fix it? I think I know your answer, but I just want to see what you have to say. 
in online marketing, it's pretty easy that most people's big mistake is that they are selfish, short-term, lying, narcissistic profit maximizers who don't care about building trust or giving people dignity. They're in too much of a hurry figuring out the latest online scam. As soon as you walk away from that, what you should do next becomes very obvious. You should de-anonymize. You should stop hiding. You should stop sneaking around. You should be clear. And you should realize that people who get connection and dignity from you will probably come back. You mean even if they were previously one of your customers and left, they'll come back? Is that what you mean? No, I mean that if you think the only way to get a customer to come back is to be cheaper, then you're going to lose because someone will be cheaper than you. If you think that the only way to get someone to come back is because you've optimized your website, that's unlikely as well. That if you optimize the website long enough, it becomes a porn site. Because if you just keep churning and churning and churning to see what prurient thing people will click on, that's not really the work you're proud of. It feels to me like the work you're proud of is imagine there was no internet. Imagine that there were only 300 people in the village. Imagine you had a small operation. In that setting, what would you do to make those 300 people want to talk about you and care about your success? You could do the same thing on the internet. Okay. But in the recent past, we've seen Google start to hoard traffic and you sure. know, more than 40% of their traffic stays on their site. We've seen Facebook, in my opinion, has done some inappropriate things like- I agree. The Cambridge Analytica scandal, the, you know, there's a lot of unethical stuff going on, but- these are forces that in a huge way influence our daily existence and our survival. If you are fishing and you are counting on Google and Facebook to be your net, don't be surprised that they sell to the highest bidder who isn't you. Mm -hmm. But fishing isn't the only way to grow. It's not the only way to do work that you care about. There was for years a restaurant in Los Angeles that was always had a waiting list that had an unlisted phone number. Right. How does that work, right? It works because if you're one of the people who benefit from the status of knowing about this restaurant, it's entirely possible you will share your status by telling someone else about the restaurant. And Google and Facebook had nothing to do with it. If we think about Google and Facebook as the yellow pages, it's not rational if you're unless you're a pizza place to choose to build your business on the back of the yellow pages. There are many more human ways to find, connect, and keep the attention and care of other people. So you start with an audience of one or 10. And do the really hard thing of being worth talking about, which is what I wrote about 10 books ago. Do great work. And part of doing great work is being willing to put yourself out there and doing not great things on the way to doing great things. Would you agree? Yeah, I'm not sure I put do say the put yourself out there part, but yes, the failing and the failing and the failing, the shipping of mediocre work. You know, Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize winner, has had 50 record albums and half of them are below average by definition. And if he had waited till Lay Lady Lay was ready to sing before he started singing, you never would have heard of Bob Dylan. It takes guts, man. It takes guts to just put yourself... When I say put yourself out there, I mean put products out there. And as you say, see, I made this because... What if you're a lifeguard and someone's drowning? You could say to yourself, I don't know if I'm the best swimmer on the dock. You could say to yourself, there's no guarantee I'm actually going to be able to save this person. You could say to yourself, I'm not sure I have the right to go save this person. 
or you can realize that if you don't save them, they're going to drown. And so what the hell? Yeah, that's a good point. Like that's good framing actually, because I can't imagine a lifeguard sitting there and contemplating the meaning of life and what he or she does before saving somebody. So yeah, I hear you. So we need to create a certain sense of urgency and a certain sense of maybe somehow bring up a sense of agency in us in terms of creating content and products and so on. Exactly. Which brings up another term that I like that you use, emotional labor. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So Ariel Huxchild used it differently than me, but we also use it the same way. Emotional labor used to be a term reserved for misogyny, which is that flight attendants in 1962, they didn't lift a lot of heavy objects. What was their job actually? And their job was to present positively with a smile, even if they didn't feel like it. That's labor. It's labor just as much as digging a ditch. You're exhausted at the end of the day, standing on your feet and smiling. And so some people talk about emotional labor like it's a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's work worth doing. It is the labor of showing up when you don't feel like it. No one actually cares about authenticity. What we care about is consistency, about you keeping your promise. So if you are having a lousy day, but we have scheduled knee surgery for me, I don't want you to say at the last minute, "Eh, I'm in a really bad mood. I'm going to do a lousy job on your knee. That would be authentic. But I don't want you to be authentic. I want you to be consistent. So show up, bring some emotional labor to the table, act like you couldn't imagine being anywhere more than you are right here, right now on my knee and do a great job because that's the deal we make. And so most of us have no choice if we want to matter, but to do emotional labor in our work. And that is something you're doing right now on this podcast. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Actually, I am really pleased to be able to talk to you today. You're a fine correspondent and a good egg. So sometimes I have to show up when I don't feel like it. Right now I'm showing up because I do feel like it, but hopefully people can't tell them apart. (laughs) Well, thank you, Seth. That means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. Okay, two more questions. One is one of my other members asked, how do you give insane value to your audience without appearing like you're trying to elicit reciprocity? Insane value is different than low prices. Low prices do not create insane value. That in almost every category, in almost every market, people do not buy the cheapest thing. Even in little villages that are off the grid, people are not buying the cheapest thing. What we buy matters a lot to how we see ourselves. Now, if you are giving people insane value in order to get them to then take action, then I would say smart people are going to see what you are doing. You could still do it and it might work. But I didn't write 7,600 blog posts so that one day someone would say, wow, I owe Seth a lot. I'll go take the Alt-MBA. They're not related. Just one and the other are things that I do, but I'm not looking for reciprocity. I have earned attention, which has come with some trust. And I've used that attention and trust to talk to people who I think can benefit from this and said, we do this. Show up if you think it will help you. And that is different than the quid pro quo of, here, I did this for you, now you owe me something. How is the old MBA different to a traditional MBA? The only thing they have in common is three letters. The Alt MBA is not a great name for it, but I'm sort of stuck with it. It's a 30-day intensive online workshop 
We've run it in 75 countries. More than 4,000 people have graduated. You are in video conferences, a lot like this one, with groups with three or four people. There are no video lessons. It's project-based. You do 13 projects in 30 days. And it will change your life. It will change the way you see, the way you make decisions, the way you lead. And we only ran it twice. And then I was done. But it has been so effective that we keep running it. But you have to apply to get in. If the right people don't show up, we don't run it. And how do people apply? If you go to altmba.com, you can see all the details. There are a lot of details there. Uh, the next session is this April and the signups are in January. Did Thank you. Right? Yeah, that was great. Thank you very okay. much. You're welcome. Um, I got to run. All right, Seth. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful. It's a pleasure. Take care, man. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 